It's good to see everybody this morning. Thankful for Chad and the good lesson he gave us. Take out your Bible, please. Go over to Revelation chapter 1. Fasten your seatbelts because we are about to tackle Revelation. Today we are beginning a journey together. We're going through Revelation. We just completed the book in our Bible reading, right? We just finished Revelation 22 this past Friday. We actually read uh, the entire New Testament in 2020, and Revelation was uh, obviously the last book of the reading. It is God's final message to mankind before he speaks again on the judgment day. And he says, either well done, good and faithful servant, or depart, I never knew you. Now, for the next few months, for the next few months, we are going to be studying Revelation. This book may have been very confusing to you as you read it over the past few weeks. I've had some of you come to me and tell me uh, that you're glad we're studying Revelation because there were some very difficult parts to it, some very confusing parts. And you hope that our Bible classes will help you and your understanding of it. Brother Mitch and I are actually going to be teaching this class together. I'm going to go through Revelation 1 with you today and Wednesday and then Brother Mitch wants to take several weeks and go through the seven churches of Asia, which will be Revelation 2 through 3. We're going to do our best to stick closely to the schedule uh, that you may have in your material. The schedule is on the website. Uh, there are going to be a few occasions when we may get a little behind, but I promise you we're going to do our best to, to stick close to that schedule. Okay, So we're going to get ready to study it today. Before we do that, let's bow our heads and let's ask for God's blessing. Almighty God, our Holy Father, thank you so much, Father, for the book of Revelation, your word, your inspired word. We pray, Father, that we can do our best to gain good understanding of it over the next several months as we study this book through the month of all the way through the month of to the month of August. We pray, Father, that we can learn together, grow together, be mature in our actions towards one another and in our understanding and glean very good practical lessons that can help us navigate through a very dark and sinful world today. We're mindful, Father, of those who are unable to be here for various health reasons. We pray that your hand of blessing be upon them. And we're just so thankful for your Bible and your word and every person here who teaches your word and studies it. We pray that you will bless us, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so as we study Revelation, we need to lay a little bit of groundwork before we dive into this. Uh, Mitch and I have a responsibility to make sure that this class stays on the right track as we move forward because it can easily get off the wrong, it get off and put on the wrong track. So it's our responsibility to sail this ship properly. So we're going to try to do that. As far as the book goes, this is just a quick overview of things we're going to be talking about. We're doing Revelation 1 today, which is the intro. Revelation 2 through 3, the seven churches of Asia, where Jesus personally addresses those churches. Chapter 4, the vision of God, the Father in heaven. Chapter 5, a critical chapter, the book with the seven seals. 
Chapter 6, the first six seals of that book is opened. Chapter 7 is an interlude. One of the things you'll see in this book is every time you have a series of seven, the seventh thing that is open is transitional. So the seven seals will open up the seven trumpets. Then the, seven trump the seventh trumpet will open up the seventh bowl, seven bowls of wrath. The seventh whatever is always transitional. There's always an interlude after the sixth whatever is opened. Chapters 12 through 13, the enemies are introduced. There are many enemies in this book. There's the red dragon. There's the sea beast, the earth beast, the harlot. Many, many enemies are introduced in this book. And in verse, chapters 14 through 20, they all go down one by one. Judgment is brought on the harlot, the sea beast, the earth beast, and ultimately the red dragon. And then chapters 21 through 22 is the outcome for the saints. This right here is the big shot of what's going on in the book of Revelation. Now, let me just take a few moments to explain some and establish some things right away. So listen carefully, please. This is a difficult book. In my view, it's not the most difficult book of the Bible, but it is a difficult book. It's a meaty book. It is a book that we need to be careful in being dogmatic. We can't be dogmatic on this book. You can't be dogmatic on apocalyptic books. So we need to be careful of that. You may come here already with your views on this book. You may have your interpretations on different things on this book, and that's fine. Um, when you're dealing with a book like this that's not clear cut on some things, it is not good to come here and debate things that you, you, you can't be clear on. Baptism for remission of sins. Is that pretty obvious in the Bible? It's pretty obvious. Um, Jesus being the Son of God. Is that pretty obvious? It's pretty obvious. Is those salvation issues? Yes. Understanding apocalyptic language, not a salvation issue. If it was, God would have made it more easier to understand, believe me. So we're not going to be dogmatic on this book. You may be an early date person. I'm not an early date person. I'm a late date person. You could be right. I could be wrong. I could be right. You could be wrong. These are kind of things that happen in churches. You can disagree on these kind of things and still go to heaven. Okay? You may take the view that this is talking about destruction of Jerusalem. If so, God bless you. I appreciate your study. I don't agree with that, but I'm not going to say you're going to hell because you believe that. You can't be dogmatic on an apocalyptic book. You just can't be. So what I'm going to do to avoid sin, me being in sin, is I'm going to have to teach what I believe is true in faith. Remember what Paul said, if you don't do it in faith, it's sin. So I got to teach what I believe is true. And I'm, I'm going to I have to do that to stay out of sin. I have to do that. I can do that in faith. So one of the things I want to ask you, and I'm asking this in love, let's not use our time to debate interpretations of Revelation. Let's not use our time to do that. If you have some things you disagree about with me or Mitch, or you have different interpretation, you can email me about that, talk to us about that in private. But since the book is confusing enough, and since we got people watching us online, and since we got new converts in here, and it's going to be hard enough for them as it is, let's not use this time to make it more confusing. Let's not use our time to debate matters concerning apocalyptic language. 
So let's go ahead and jump to into it now that we've kind of laid the groundwork and, and put some parameters up and some, and some cautious signs up. And let's go to chapter one. Chapter one is a critically important chapter because it puts us on a path to avoid abusing and misusing the book. One of my favorite inventions to ever be made is GPSs. I love GPSs, don't you? I love being able to get my phone out, somebody give me their address, and I can just type the thing in, and it tells me where to go. One of the things that really bothers me is when people say, you know, people invite you to their house, and they'll say, okay, this is what you do. You, you leave your house, and you go down this street, and then you make a right here, make a left there. I don't want to hear all that. Just give me the address. I'll put it in my GPS. I like GPSs. I don't like reading maps. I don't like hearing directions from people. I don't like writing down directions. I promise you my GPS can get me there. So I like GPSs because I can just plug in the address and it'll tell you where you, tell you, where you need to go. Men especially, we don't like asking for directions, do we? Wives, y'all know we don't like asking for directions. We go on trips, we'd rather be lost for three hours before we stop and ask for directions. It's a pride thing with men. So the reason I bring that up is because chapter one of Revelation is the GPS. It is the GPS to understanding the book properly. The book of Revelation chapter one, in chapter one you have what are called some road signs, some guideposts. You have a GPS to properly understand this book. If you miss the guidepost, if you miss the road signs in the first chapter, then you're going to be going in territory you don't need to go, that God doesn't want you to go. You know, it almost seems like when God revealed this book, he knew that people in 2021 were going to mess it all up. He knew that. He knew that people 2,000 years later were going to go to this book and say, okay, it applies to Donald Trump or it applies to Joe Biden or it applies to the coronavirus. He knew people were going to do that kind of stuff. And so before he goes any further, he tries to give some guideposts. He tries to give some road signs so that people can be able to avoid taking this book down a path he doesn't want it to go. Now, I preached a sermon on this a few weeks ago, but I'm going to review it with you again because it is critically important that we be on the same page with these guideposts, these road signs, these things that God is flashing at us right away to help us navigate through the book properly. So let's do that in chapter one. Can we do that? Let's go through seven guideposts, seven road signs that God says we need to take heed to if we're going to avoid misusing this book. So follow me carefully here. Let's start with the first one, the first guidepost, the name. The name of the book is not coming from men. Men didn't make the name of this book. God named this book. We see that in Revelation 1 and verse 1. Notice how the book opens up. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice how the book is not called Revelations, is it? It's not an S on it. So often we say Revelations. It's not called Revelations. What is it called? Revelation. This is the book of Revelation. The word Revelation is derived from the Greek word apocalypsis. Our English word apocalypse is derived from this Greek word. That when we think of apocalypse today, we usually think about the end of the world. 
destruction, the end of all things. That's not what the Greek word apocalypsis means. The Greek word apocalypsis means to uncover. It means to reveal. It means to disclose. This book is going to disclose something. It is going to reveal something. It is going to uncover something. What is it going to uncover according to the first verse? Jesus Christ. It's going to tell you something about Jesus. This is a book about Jesus. This is a revelation of Jesus Christ. This book is going to tell us something about Jesus that God wants us to know. And so that's the first guidepost. Before you go any further, the first thing God says as he starts the book is this is not a revelation of the coronavirus. This is not a revelation of Adolf Hitler. This is not a revelation of things going on in our time today. This is a revelation of Jesus. This is a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not even a revelation of the end of the world. This is a revelation of Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. This book is about Jesus, okay? God says that very, very clearly. And so we go to the second guidepost, and we want to talk about the genre of the book. What kind of book is this? You know, the Bible is made up of different genres. You have historical books. You got poetic books. You got law books, history books, epistles, gospels. This book is a book of prophecy. It's a book of prophecy. We see that in the beginning of the book and the end of the book. God wants us to understand this over and over again. This is what you would call a prophetic book. In Revelation 1, look at verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy. Revelation 22, the last chapter of the book. Revelation 22 and verse 7. Revelation 22 and verse 7. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Verse number 10, an angel said to John, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. Verses 18 and 19 of the last chapter, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. Verse 19, if anyone takes away from the words of the, of, of the book of this prophecy, over and over again, we see that this is a book of prophecy. Now, let me ask you this, and I want to hear somebody's answer on this. Somebody raise your hand if you have an answer to this question. What does prophecy mean? Give me a good definition without Googling it real quick. Uh, what, is, what is prophecy? What does it mean to prophesy, to read prophecy? Anybody got an answer? Raise your hand. Yes, Brother Jonathan. Primarily is teaching the will of God. Yes, primarily is teaching the will of God. Anyone else have an answer? Well, that's an inspiration. But I think you're still getting at the same idea as Brother Jonathan. Tony, yes. That's that's typically um, Tony said he thought it meant predictions. And that is typically where people limit it to. I want to say something about that. One more answer. Gary, yes, sir. what you're saying, declaration of the mind of God. And I think we got to really drive that home because, Tony, you're right. So often, Tony, when we think of prophecy, we're thinking of predictions, predicting the future. And that's part of it. But that's not all of it. 
a, a good definition for prophecy is just to understand it is a declaration of God's mind. It is when someone is revealing the will of God under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So let's talk about that a little bit. When you think about prophecy, it's important to understand that prophecy is not just limited to what's going on in the future, but it can also reveal the past and things going on in the present. For example, in the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis begins by talking about the creation, right? It talks about all God did when creating the world in six literal days. Now, let me ask you this question. How in the world did Moses, who wrote Genesis, know that? He wasn't there in the beginning. How did he know that stuff? Because God told it to him. See, Moses is a prophet. He's revealing things from the past, things that he wasn't there for physically, but he still knows about it because God told it to him. When you look at the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, as Paul is talking to the church in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 14, 37, he says, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet, let him recognize that the things I write are the commandments of God. The things I'm writing in the present. If you have prophets among you, they should be able to tell you that I am declaring the mind of God. And then when you look at the major prophets, the book of Isaiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Habakkuk, they often are talking about things going on in the future. They're talking about the captivity of Israel into Babylon. They're talking about the restoration after 70 years. They're talking about the coming of people like Alexander the Great to Antiochus Epiphanes. They're talking about even the destruction of Jerusalem. So you have, when you think about prophecy, don't just limit it to predictions of the future. That's a big part of it, but also understand a prophet can be revealing things from the past and he can also be declaring God's will for the present. Does that make sense? So, so that's, that's the idea of prophecy. That's what's going on here in Revelation. You've got things being revealed from past, present, future. So what was to be done with the prophecies of Revelation? Go back to Revelation 1 and verse 3. What was to be done with the prophecies found in Revelation according to Revelation 1 and verse 3. What do you see there? John is told to do something with these prophecies or the, or the reader is told to do something with these prophecies. What does it say? What does it say they ought to do? Revelation 1 and verse 3. Two things. Hear and heed. Her, hear and heed. Yes. And I would even say that kind of goes with heed, right? So, so hear, pay attention. As Chad said, you need to hear these prophecies, but you also need to heed them. You need to submit to them. You need to obey them. You see? So, so mark that in your Bible. These prophecies that we're going to be looking at are to be heard. They are to be heeded. Okay? And there's a reason why. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. Now, so we got the first two. The first two guideposts God has given us. The name is the revelation of Jesus, the content prophecy. But then we get to the style of the book. How is God going to communicate these prophecies? Is he going to communicate them like you find in the book of Acts? It's pretty straightforward, pretty, pretty easy to understand. Is he going to communicate like he does in the epistles, the New Testament epistles? Is he going to communicate like he does in the majority of the gospels or even in the historical books of the Old Testament? No, no, sir, no, ma'am. God says, I'm going to do this through, through a signified language. Signify. Now, someone says, well, why does God want to do it that way? Why couldn't God make it easier? Well, who are we to challenge God on how he decides to communicate with man? 
God can communicate with men any way he desires. He doesn't have to communicate with us at all. So so we need to be glad that he decides to do it through this way. God is going to do this signified. The idea of being signified means that God is going to express the message of revelation through signs and symbols and figures. Another way you could say that is the language of this book is apocalyptic. Apocalyptic. Many of the books, many of the books of the Bible are written, written in this style. This is not unique to Revelation. You understand that, right? Can you think of some other books in your Bible, particularly in your Old Testament, that are written in this same style, or at least portions of it are written in this same style? Anybody got one? Done. Give me one. Just one, Just one right? <laughs> Just what? That, 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 see, that, that ain't the cheating done. <laughs> you didn't hear and you didn't heed there. No, that's right. Daniel is a good one. I love Daniel, especially when you get past Daniel 6. The second half of Daniel is apocalyptic. Zechariah, the whole thing is pretty much apocalyptic. Those are apocalyptic books. Tony. What about Job? Which one? Well, that's not apocalyptic style. That's more poetic. That's a poetic, but we're going to talk about that this morning in our lesson. That falls into the category of, of the poetic books, the wisdom literature. So the prophets are the ones that primarily do this. Zechariah is apocalyptic. Signs and symbols. Daniel, signs and symbols. Daniel talks about the lamb and the goat and the different kinds of beasts. Those, when, signs and symbols is when you have figures in a book and these figures represent something. That's the idea of signs and symbol. So in, in many of Daniel's visions, he has like a ram and a goat, and the ram and the goat represents two kingdoms. You see what I'm saying? That's signs and symbols. Anybody else have one? Gary? Ezekiel. Ezekiel. Good one. Ezekiel's apocalyptic. All, all through the book. Big book, apocalyptic. Uh, yes? Last 27 chapters of Isaiah. Yes, Isaiah, apocalyptic. So the ones I wrote down, apocalyptic books, Isaiah... Zechariah, Ezekiel, the book of Joel will go in there. The book of Joel's apocalyptic. Daniel, all those books are written just like Revelation. This is why Don and I were talking about this one time. I firmly believe this is the challenge for teaching a class like this in a setting like this. is because you got new converts in here a lot of times, and a lot of times new converts, they still need some milk. This ain't milk. This filet mignon right here. This is some steak. Okay? This steak. So imagine eating steak with no teeth. I think yeah, I mean, I'm telling you, I mean, this, is, this is steak here. So a lot of times people struggle with Revelation because they don't have the good foundation to start with when studying it. They don't really know the Old Testament. You got to know the Old Testament to a large degree to be able to appreciate Revelation because a lot of Revelation is written just like books found in the Old Testament. And, and, and the early Christians, especially the Jewish Christians, would have really been able to get Revelation right away because they were familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. So, so you know, read. If, you, this, if this is your first time to go through Revelation, I would recommend going back and reading Isaiah, Zechariah. Read some of these Old Testament books. That's critically important. But let me say this. And if we don't get to all these guideposts, don't worry. We'll, we'll finish it Wednesday because I want to make sure I really cover a lot of this stuff. It's not just the Old Testament books that are written in this style. This was a common genre in Bible times, period. 
Now, our kids are not taught apocalyptic literature in school, okay? Shawn Michael has never come home and said, hey, Dad, we learned apocalyptic literature today. No, we don't, we don't teach our kids that. Now, we may teach them some Shakespeare, right? We may teach them some Homer. We're not going to teach them apocalyptic stuff. In the, in the Bible times, this was taught. This was a common genre. It was taught to kids. It was taught to children. So when you read books like the Apocrypha, anybody know what the Apocrypha is? What is the Apocrypha? It's the additional books that are not necessarily truly inspired. They're not inspired, but the Catholic Bible, the Catechism, includes them in their canon. Catholics will include the Apocrypha books in their canon. They, they say they are inspired, but you're right, they're not inspired. And they never claimed to be inspired. Those who wrote the Apocrypha books never claimed that they were inspired. The Apocrypha books are books, and, and I, Don, I can't remember the exact number on that, forgive me. But there's maybe 22, something like that. But it's a series of books, maybe between 17 and 22, something like that. But, but it's, a, it's a series of books that were written between the Testaments, between Malachi and Matthew. There were some historical books that were written between the Testaments by Jewish people. And even in those books, if you read those books, they will say over and over again that there have been no prophets in Israel since Malachi. They, they say that continually. But they give you, they're important because they tell you a lot about what's going on in that 400-year gap. That 400-year gap between Malachi and Matthew. Okay. Now, some of those books include the books of the Maccabees. The Maccabees are important because that tells you about the, the time when the Jews got independence from the Syrians. This is why Jews celebrate Hanukkah to this day. Hanukkah is not the Jewish Christian. Hanukkah is the Jewish Independence Day. They're celebrating the time when they got independence from Antiochus Epiphanes. You learn about that the most in the book of the Maccabees when Judas the Hammer and his sons led the Jews to their independence from the Syrians. There are other books that are also included, First uh, and Second Esdras, a uh, lot of, I can't remember all the names off the top of my head, you can Google that later, but the point is, in a lot of those books, a lot of those books you find apocalyptic language. You find the apocalyptic signs and symbols language being used because that was a common genre that was used by Jews in their writings. They particularly use that language to talk about judgment, to talk about God bringing judgment on a group of people. For all the husbands in the room, if you, if Gary was to leave Etna a nice note in the morning to let her know just how much he loves her, and how she just melts his heart, right, Gary? You want to leave some on the counter for her. You might, I'm pretty sure, you being a more romantic guy than me, you, you might write that in poetry. Poetry is called the language of what? Language of love. See, we, we, we use poems to express love. That's that genre you use for that situation. Well, if you can understand how poetry is used to express love, then you can also understand how to the Jews in these times, if you want to express judgment, if you want to express God bringing down a powerful enemy that is oppressing his people, you're going to then pick the genre of apocalyptic. 
the apocalyptic genre is, the, is, the, is what you would use to communicate that. Now, I believe, personally, that is the main reason why this book is written in this kind of style. John chose this style because it was the perfect genre to communicate the message that he wants to communicate to these Christians, and that is God is going to bring down our enemies. But there's a second thing, and I saw your hand, Tony. Let me just say this. A second thing people often say as a reason why God used this style was the argument of reveal and conceal. You ever heard of reveal and conceal? Some say that God wants to use this particular style to reveal his will to his people while at the same time concealing it from the oppressors, which were the Romans, I believe. So if they got a hold of the letter, they're reading it. I'm like, we don't have a clue what this means. But the Christians would. So you got two arguments as to why people think Revelation is written in this style. Reveal and conceal. Write that down. Reveal it to the to the audience, to the targeted audience, reveal it to God's people while concealing it from the enemies if they got a hold of the letter. And then secondly, because of the genre itself and how it is the perfect genre to communicate the message that God wants to get across, which is judgment, judgment on, on enemies. Matthew 24, we've studied Matthew 24 before. That's another apocalyptic chapter. When Jesus talks about the sun being darkened, the moon not shedding its light, that's apocalyptic. And what is Jesus talking about there? He's talking about God destroying the Jewish people, God snuffing them out as a nation. Jesus uses apocalyptic language to talk about God bringing down the Jewish nation because they rejected him. This is common in the Bible. Okay, Tony, go right ahead, sir. Yes. They're secular history books. The Jews always understood them to be secular history books. Those who wrote them said were nothing more than secular history books, yet uh, Catholics uh, say they're inspired. That's why they include them in their Bible. But they're not, supposed, they're not supposed to be. They're no different than, you know, like the Gnostic Gospels. You know, some people say, what about the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Judas? I mean, these are books you can learn some things from, but they don't come from God. That's pretty much the same. It's the same thing. It has that kind of value. Okay. Absolutely. So, so they're not essential to our obedience. Absolutely not. The, the only reason I brought them up, Tony, was just to point out how that genre was common in Bible times. We find the Bible writers using it, but secular historians used it also. That's the only reason I brought it up. Brother Dunn, yes, sir. Done, done. That is excellent point, because even the books between the Testaments that were written in that genre, that they were being written during the time when the Syrians were oppressing the Jewish people. And that's it was it's the same idea. So this this genre was very common to give people confidence boosts, like you say, to give them some hope and encouragement to hang in there, but not inspired. Absolutely. So uh, Lance. Yes, sir. And then I'll move on. Go right ahead, sir. So one of the styles 
those are historical fiction that people today are trying to bring, bring, into, the, the, bring into the canon. Right. right. And, and one of the things that's kind of neat is within apocryphal writing, the little thing that we're familiar with, devil on one shoulder, angel on another, that's actually found in the apocryphal. <laughs> yeah, right? it's a lot of weird stuff in those books. Yeah. And, and, yeah. A lot of that stuff has been brought in today. We just don't know where it's uh, that's, that's absolutely right. So, when y'all go back to Revelation 1, y'all making some great points, excellent points. I want to close this class, and I appreciate y'all being patient with me. We're going to have to uh, just be patient with each other. we got a lot of stuff to cover. If you notice, even on your schedule, uh, there's uh, three classes at the end that are just kind of blank in case we needed extra time. There's a reason for that. <laughs> so, so just, just hang with me. My, my job, Mitch's job, we're, we're trying to work together to just help everybody get the most out of this book. Okay, so let's close with this, okay? Look at Revelation 1. I want to read verses 12 through 20. I want to give us, I want to do a sample here of how to read apocalyptic language, okay? I want to show you how, a contrast, how the early Christians would have read this section to how we read it today. And it's very different, okay? So let's start with Revelation 1, 12 through, through 20, okay? It says, and this is John, and I believe the Apostle John is the one who wrote this. I believe he wrote it towards the end of the first century, between 90 and 100 A.D. or 90 and 95 A.D. Uh, that, that's my take on it. And he says, and I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were like white, were, were white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it had been to glow in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys, the authority of death and Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, the seven and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, Western civilization, Western culture, we read that and we just, we're all the way, I got to verse 20 and you still trying to, you still focused on verse 14 probably. You're like, whoa, 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 I mean, what does the hair represent and what do the feet represent and what is this voice like the sound of many waters? See, in our culture, we are programmed to try to break down every little thing. Everything has to mean something. That's how we're programmed. That's not how the Jewish mind would have programmed it when they read this. They wouldn't have been trying to break down every single part of this. Now, when it comes to some of the things that are listed here, we don't have to guess what it means, do we? For example, the seven golden lampstands. What do those things represent according to verse 20? The seven stars according to verse 20. What, is, what are those? Angels. Do you got to guess about that, Gary? Bible tells you. Don't have to guess. 
the rest of this stuff, you can throw your ideas out. I can throw mine out. It's just an opinion because the Bible don't tell you. You can try to make your make your case as to what the flaming eyes are. And no, you're going to be wasting your time. You're going to be wasting. And none of that is to be literal. Jesus don't have fire eyes. Literally, none of that is literal. He doesn't have literal hair like wool, white like snow. I know that's how we're programmed. We like in our culture, we like to everything's literal. Everything's literal. That's why we struggle with revelation. We struggle with it because we take that Western thinking and put it in a first century document. Can't do it. You can't do it. Now, the two edged sword. Maybe we can be have an idea of that when you look at Hebrews four and verse 12. And it says the word of God is sharper then what? Any two-edged sword, so the two-edged sword come out of his mouth, I think we can say to conclude, that's the word of God. The word of God. But let me ask you this. This is how you read apocalyptic language. Stay with me, just two minutes. When you read that, and I read those things to you about Jesus, because that's about Jesus, somebody give me one word, just give me one word as to what, you, what impression you get about Jesus when you read that. Just give me one word, somebody. Powerful. What else? Spiritual. The way. The way. Somebody else. Purified. Purified. Someone else. Amazing. Amazing. You know what you just did, John? You know what you just did? You know what you just did? You just properly read apocalyptic language. That's how you read apocalyptic language. You read the, you read the section and you step out, you step back and go, hey, what do I get from this? I get majestic. I get alive, I get victorious, I get wonderful, I get there's hope. That's how you read apocalyptic language. You don't go back and try to figure out what everything means and then you miss the point. The point is Jesus is alive, he's victorious, he's glorious, he's majestic. He's ready to lead his people to victory. That's how you read apocalyptic language. That's how they would have read it. And that's how you get the power from it by just reading it and saying to yourself, what is the point? What is, what is this dramatic language trying to get me to understand? Clearly, this dramatic language here is trying to get you to understand Jesus is great and he's in full control. If you saw that there, guess what? You just read apocalyptic language right. That's how you do it. That's how you do it. So that's how I want to challenge us to do this. I want us to challenge ourselves to not miss the forest for the trees. If you've been struggling with Revelation, maybe, just maybe you've been struggling because you've been reading it wrong. You've been, you've been reading it just trying to break down things that's nothing more than window dressing a lot of times. Read it, take a step back and say, what's the point? If you do that, I promise you, I promise you, you're going to get a whole lot more from this reading. Okay. Now, I still got four more to go. I only got through three. Uh, we're going to do the other four Wednesdays. Is that okay? Uh, I appreciate you. I hope you're excited about this study. I'm excited. I've taught Revelation. This is probably my fourth or fifth time. I get killed every time I teach it. It's, it's tough. So I get, well, don't y'all crucify me, okay? Uh, I'm going to do my best. So just bear with me, okay? I'm learning just like you. But I appreciate y'all, and I'm looking forward to the study. God bless you. We'll pick this up on Wednesday.